you are listening to the Future of Now podcast. We share stories from technologists, futurists, and corporate rebels from across the globe that are shaping the way we work, driving innovation, and disrupting industry. Our goal with this podcast is to inspire you to explore new ways of working and opportunities for growth. I am Dan Levy. And I'm your host, Aki Maidamari, and we're from More Space for Light. In this week's episode, we are joined by Leah Zaidi. Leah is an award-winning futurist and the founder of strategic foresight consultancy, Multiverse Design. Hey, Leah. Thank you so much for joining us on the Future of Now podcast. It's so great to have you here. I'm really excited to get to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Before we go into the depths of our conversation, I have a bit of a true or false statement for you. True or false, futurists can save the world. True, but with a caveat. I think the the nature of the problems that we are facing and what the, the future might bring is so complex that it's going to take all of us participating in some capacity or another. So futurists are a part of the answer, but we're just one part of the answer. We need politicians, we need business leaders, we need economists, we need activists, we need everybody to sort of pitch in and do their part as well. So we can save the future, but only if we're all saving it together. So we'll touch on that throughout the conversation, but let's just take a step back a little bit. From your perspective, what is a futurist? What does it mean to be one? And why do we need them in this world? Right. So the the term futurist has taken on a whole bunch of different meanings depending on who you speak to. It's almost kind of become a meaningless word in some ways, kind of like innovation is. We we mm. don't really know how to define it. We don't really have a clear set of standards for it. And so right now it's in that same space that social media was about 15 years ago when everybody was calling themselves a social media ninja and we had no idea what that actually meant. So what will likely happen over the next while is that we'll get some clarity on who a futurist really is. There's a lot of, you know, aspects of the future that we think about both in the short run and in the long run. What makes a futurist is whether or not they think about the future strategically. So being a futurist, I think, is really in the process and not in the outcome. So how you go about doing the work, how you look for signals of change, how you think about alternatives and the way that they could play out over a longer term horizon. And then what does that mean for today? So futures is really about doing the process and not so much the content because the future doesn't really exist. So it's about how we go about thinking about it now. So there's definitely a difference between just thinking about what might happen in the future and strategically actually implementing what could be in those futures. Yeah, it's very, it can be challenging to think about what the future might bring from a strategic perspective because the work that we do is evidence based. It's not necessarily speculating about what could happen, it's looking at the evidence of where things are going and then understanding the different ways that that could play out. And so bringing together a whole bunch of disparate pieces of evidence is challenging work. It's very easy to misinterpret. It's easy to get wrong. And sometimes we do get it wrong because we're not really looking to predict the future. It's not about saying this one thing is going to happen. Instead, what we're doing is we're exploring possibilities and we're looking for strategies that will play out well, regardless of what possibilities emerge so that we're not just banking on one type of future happening. We're really trying to understand what the best course of action is for the present day regardless of what happens later on. And that definitely touches on what you had said 
before with the caveat of futurists being alone and saving the world, you definitely need other people in the team to pick up where there are gaps. And you see that a lot when you work with teams from different disciplines. Absolutely. We are process experts. And so we need the content experts who understand their area deeply and, you know, very well to a level that we just don't to help augment our understanding of where things can go. And part of being a process expert is bringing together different content experts to then get those pieces of the puzzle that we can put together to form a more complete picture. Well, what inspired you to take this path? I got here through science fiction. So I used to be a marketer. I like to describe myself as a recovering marketer. And so I, I've had a love of writing for a very long time. And I was writing science fiction long before I knew that futures and foresight were an actual job. And in the process of writing science fiction and thinking about the future, I came across the OCAD program, the Masters of Design in Strategic Foresight and Innovation. And I found out that two amazing science fiction authors who I've luckily you know, been able to meet with and chat with, who are just wonderful people, Madeline Ashby and Carl Schroeder had gone through the program as well. And so I thought, you know, if it's good enough for them, it's definitely good enough for me. And so I was able to take that experience and that background in writing and science fiction and translate that into a career in strategy and foresight. Thinking about all this information that we have any given time, do you feel like there are signals that we missed before that are being identified now? Or do you feel like it's more like sifting through the noise to find real true connections, like finding a needle in a haystack? Yeah, it can be very challenging because signals of change are popping up everywhere and it can be very difficult to discern what is a critical signal versus, you know, what is just noise and is going to become trendy and just going to fade away. The challenge of being a futurist sometimes is that you have to look at everything and treat everything like it's important, but it can mean that, you know, we need to pay attention to certain things more than others because more certain things have greater implications than others do. So for instance, all of the scientific data around environmental degradation and climate change is absolutely critical. That will affect everything. So those are signals that can't be ignored and we need to pay attention to very closely. You know, But if you're in an industry like construction, maybe AR and fashion doesn't apply to you to the same degree that it would to the entertainment industry, right? So you can kind of hedge your bet in terms of like what is going to be critical to you versus what's not you know and having said that like who knows AR and fashion could reveal something about safety gear and helmets so sometimes when we think something is inapplicable it could be later on and it can be challenging but a good futurist keeps their eye on the signals and is constantly watching and is vigilant about what is changing and usually looking at the implications of those things on an ongoing basis. How different really are the signals across industries? It depends on uh, the kind of signal that we're looking at. So I always advocate for looking broadly, regardless of what industry or what company you're working with. So having a broad scan is really important because sometimes the disruption that's coming into your industry may not come from a source that you expect it to come from. Sometimes innovation is happening in a different place that can radically change your industry. And so Looking broadly is always important. That being said, you have to set a boundary somewhere. <laughs> so boundary setting is its one of the most difficult things to do because without having some sort of scope of work, you can just go anywhere and everywhere and you can continue doing that for years on end. So there you can, you know, effectively 
work on a foresight project forever if you really wanted to, because time will continue and there will always be new signals. Um, but we try to bound the work as much as we can and where we can keep a breadth of work as well, because again, you never know where, where things are going to come from, but it's important to pay attention to certain factors. Again, like things like climate change are always going to be important to pay attention to no matter what industry you're in. So some of those deeper, you know, more impactful signals can emerge and keeping an eye on those is critical. Are your constraints more typically time-based or are they other constraints as well? Sometimes we can focus in on a topic area. So for instance, if we're working uh, with an entertainment company, I might you know, focus in on what is the future of entertainment as yeah. opposed to what is the future of everything, right? But the future of entertainment is affected by so many different things that are happening right now. So changing business models, how COVID has played into all of that, where audience values are shifting, the role of sustainability and entertainment in the future. So trying to bound it around a certain topic and then looking at how different signals feed into that is where we try to get some scope. And then on the other hand, with time, we might put a time frame on it as well. So typically when we're doing corporate strategy work, a futurist might give a time horizon of between five to 10 years because we're looking at doing more grounded work that people are looking to uh, implement in the near future as opposed to some of those longer time horizons. That being said, I'm working with an organization right now that needs to look at a 10,000 year time horizon because of the nature of the work that they're doing and what they're dealing with. And so sometimes you can get into these very long time horizons that seem like they're not applicable at all, but then do yield some insight that has some strategic value. So it really depends on the project and the, the organization, what they're looking to do. With a 10,000 year horizon, where would you even start to break that down? You would ask a lot of weird questions. So, <laughs> you know, like what is, this is where science fiction becomes really interesting and useful because it goes into the weird a lot mm-hmm. more. So we we would look at like what is the absolute fringe of research and the like very outliers of possibility getting into you know things that are wild and crazy and preposterous and then you know working that into either questions or scenarios of what could emerge down the road knowing that we're not doing it because there's a strategy that's going to be enacted you know for the 10,000 year time horizon it's more so to understand where you know gaps might be in our thinking or what are some the the weirder possibilities that could emerge sooner that we're not really thinking about. So it's really to push thinking more than it is anything else. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of your work and your research. And we can start by talking about the value of dystopias, because when we talk about futurists and speculative futures, a lot of time dystopias come up. And you wrote a really great piece about the dangers of dismissing dystopias. But in a nutshell, why would you say that it's dangerous to dismiss them? Yeah, so there's a number of reasons why we should pay close attention to dystopias. A lot of people don't want to because that's the depiction of the negative future as opposed to the bright, happy stuff that we all really want. But the fact is that dystopias are real and they exist and you can look at a map and point to places in the the world that are experiencing severe systemic breakdown. We're collectively experiencing a dystopia right now with COVID, but we're not all experiencing it in the same way. And so dystopias are important because they are real. They're not evenly distributed. It's a reality for many people around the world, and we don't want to dismiss that experience, that very real lived experience of a systemic breakdown in how systems oppress us and how systems can make our lives very, very difficult. So that's important to to keep in mind. The other reason why we want to pay attention to dystopias that I think is critical is that 
dystopias are written as a warning. They're not written as like, here's the bad thing and we want the bad thing to happen. Like nobody in their right mind wants the dystopia to happen. But they're written as warnings about what happens when we don't take action in the present, what happens when we get complacent. And when you look at dystopias for children in particular, dystopias for children are pathways to rebellion. They're about, you know, what do you do when you're faced with authority figures who are abusing their power when you are put into circumstances that are not acceptable? How do you react? And it's my personal theory, and I this has kind of been validated by some of the, the protests and, and things that I've been seeing, is that, you know, the kids who grew up on stories like Harry Potter and the Hunger Games are the same kids who are protesting against gun violence and, you know, advocating against climate change because they grew up with these stories. And so there's a thing that kicks in called narrative transportation, which is the more closely you identify with a character in a story, the more likely you are to emulate their behavior and take on their values. And so you have all of these kids, an entire generation of kids that grew up on dystopias that know what authority is supposed to look like, what an abusive authority looks like, and how to then approach that. So we shouldn't really be surprised (laughs) that the kids today are taking on bigger issues that's a part of who they are. They've absorbed that message very deeply because of the dystopias that they've been reading. That ties into the next question where I wanted to ask you what the positive values and lessons we can learn from dystopias are just because dystopias are typically depicted as negative, as you said. Yeah, so it's the moral lessons and the essentially the, the warnings that are built into them, right? What happens when we dismiss those stories? What happens when we don't listen to the suppressed and the marginalized? What happens when, you know, we don't pay attention to the unethical technology that bleeds into our life and then takes on completely different uh, uses and meaning and all of that? So it's really important, I think, in that sense to pay attention to what those can be. I think it's also very important to pay attention to the unintended consequences because sometimes the dystopic thing becomes a problem later, not when it initially presents itself. It initially presents itself as something that was great and useful and we all love, and then it turns into something that's a little bit more insidious and ugly. The other thing to keep in mind as well is that, you know, we think that the bright, happy futures on the other side are all great too, but really those futures are also not evenly distributed. It's entirely possible for people to suffer within a transformation. My best example that I have of that is Upload, if you've watched that. It's a dystopian sci-fi about the future, but it's presented as a very sunny, happy sort of place of like where when you Uh, pass away, you get uploaded into a digital virtual world and you can continue living and experiencing and connect with people outside who are still living as well. But there's something really dark and ugly at at the bottom of that when you peel away the layers. And so that's really what we get on the other end as well. And so we need to pay attention to to both sides of it, both the negative futures and the positive futures, if we want to have a complete understanding of where the world might go and and what to do about it. When we talk about, you mentioned utopias, often we think, so you have dystopia, which is this dark aspect, and that's one end of the spectrum. And then you have utopia, which is the other end of the spectrum. And a lot of people think, you know, utopia is like this perfect world where everybody gets everything that's fair to everyone. But would you say that speculative designs are naturally utilitarian? I think that we get this idea that, you know, we can create the most amount of good for the most amount of people. And that is somehow the best way of operating when sometimes it's actually not. So there's movements within inclusive design, for instance, about designing for 
people who have different needs than the mainstream needs, right? And sometimes when you're designing for people who have particular needs, like let's say even if you're just designing for children, if you can design for kids, that unmet need can sometimes be really helpful to a lot more people as well. So this idea of just designing from the the many, from the get-go, isn't always necessarily the right approach, especially when we're dealing with, you know, real life issues and real life challenges that need to be addressed. But I do think that, you know, with the dystopia and utopia dichotomy that we set up, I think you're right to describe it as a spectrum. That's definitely how I describe it. So, you know, we have the very positive futures on, um, you know, one end, but the fact is that utopias don't exist. The word utopia itself is a bit misconstrued because it was meant to mean no place, but we take it as meaning good place. And so now it's become this hybrid of like a good place that doesn't exist, essentially. And, uh, you know, in previous conversations, we've talked about how New Zealand has gotten pretty close to that. Um, The Kiwis are doing well for themselves (laughs) right now. It's looking as utopic as you can get. And so there are futures that are not fully utopic that can serve a lot of people, but we have to keep in mind that those futures are not necessarily good for everybody. And so there's a lot of fraught, ugly questions that we have to peel back at, you know, over there on that end as well in terms of like, well, who's getting left behind and why? And why are we leaving them behind? Who is that future not serving? And those are, you know, sometimes questions that we shy away from, but questions that need to be asked, especially when we're looking at complex problems or social change work. We have to ask like, who we're leaving behind, unfortunately. And it's something that we should be asking in design work all the time, because really, we're not trying to design negative things. In reality, we want the best for everybody. And the question is, how do we achieve that? And that ties in really well with what we were saying earlier about how, you know, there are multiple people who need to be part of this change. And I think the first thing that popped up into mind is definitely in politics. There are policies that are being put into place that are not helping people who have been traditionally marginalized. And I I definitely see futurists playing a very important role into identifying who's being left behind, like you said. Yeah, absolutely. And that means that, you know, a broader set of people need to be brought into the room as well. So where are the Mm -hmm. activists, right? Are the activists being included? Where are the indigenous populations? Are they being included and given a voice as well? So we have to think beyond, you know, the, the stakeholders that are typically in the room, but it means that, you know, having some of those more diverse voices in the room can give voice to some of those other issues that may occur in the future that we're not talking about. And maybe that is the way to get to, you know, doing more good for more people is by being a little bit more inclusive in the present. Well, what we're talking about kind of sounds like we might be touching on social innovation a little bit. Yeah, it definitely has that sort of bent and element to it, especially because a lot of speculative design work is really intended to challenge our values and our thinking and our perception on the world. And the ultimate goal of some of that work is to shift those things, to change our values and to change how we see the world. So there is definitely, I think, a social um, change, social innovation bent to it. I I do struggle with the idea of social innovation, having done research in this space quite a bit, because Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the times we get trapped in this idea of post-traumatic innovation. So Matthew Manos described, you know, social entrepreneurship as this idea of, you know, we're responding to the trauma that has already existed within the system that's already happened. And so rather than creating a system or a future state where the problem doesn't exist and striving for that, we're just reactionary to what's happened and treating the trauma in, in a way that doesn't necessarily 
fix the problem, but maybe puts a Band-Aid on it instead. So I'll give you an example that like might throw people a little bit. Recycling is not actually a good thing. We think of recycling as being a really good thing, right. but really what recycling does is that it reinforces a waste paradigm, right? Because only so much of waste can be recycled and only a certain percentage of, you know, recyclable materials are actually good and usable and, and plastic is a real problem and, and can't fully be, you know, recycled the ways that we want it to. And there's all sorts of fraught nuances with that as well. Really, what we should be doing is looking for a world that goes beyond all of that where recycling isn't a necessity because biodegradable products are the norm or biomimicry is the norm, right? So we're thinking beyond the current paradigm into the next one. But recycling is a good thing for now because we don't have those systems set up. And so we need to do it in order to, you know, get to that point. But really, what are we designing for, right? So when we're asking ourselves, are we designing for the paradigm that is versus the paradigm that should be? There is a difference there. And sometimes the things that we think are good for uh, the world are actually not things that are aligned with the, the system that should emerge. That just reminded me, I know that a lot of fashion brands, they do this recycling system. They have something where if you have old clothes that you don't want, you can basically recycle the clothes, bring it back into the store and get a discount on your next visit. And I watched a documentary on that because I thought, you know, when I first started it and I discovered, it, I thought, wow, this is a great system. Like we're not wasting any clothes. We're not, you know, and they have those great labels when they sell their clothes and they say that this was made from a recycled garment or something like that. And you kind of get mistaken and drawn into this idea that everything that you've donated is being used responsibly. And this documentary that I saw basically showed the complete opposite, where a lot of these clothes actually end up in, you know, landmines, and a lot of them end up in underdeveloped countries. And that's kind of become their dumping ground for things that can't be reused. And there's a lot of things that are on the forefront, they look really great as a system. And it kind of gives you this feeling that you're doing something good in the world. And yet it's veiled by this really ugly truth in the background. Right. And you might have then felt good about the decisions you were making and then continue to shop more at those stores and then continue to recycle more, not knowing that it was creating this entirely different problem in the background. And that's where the unintended consequences really come because if you don't have that information, how do you know and what do you do as a result of that? And so, you know, part education is definitely part of it. Like you watching that documentary changed your perspective on it and now you you're armed with that knowledge but that means that you know communication and education are a critical component of how we look at our systems and how we approach these problems that we're in and so understanding you know where is social innovation correct where is social entrepreneurship the right answer versus like when do we really need to tear down the system and rethink what we're doing all together well, I mean, speaking of, that was one of the trends that you had actually identified in one of your works, Job Ads from the Future, which was a really creative take on looking at you know, jobs that we might need in the future based on the three trends that you identified. Climate change was one, fighting for an equal and just democratic society, and the rise of artificial intelligence. And that kind of goes back to the previous question that I asked you about touching on identifying signals when there are so many potential signals. So you distilled it down quite well into these three trends, but how did you do that? What was the process for identifying this and why was it these three trends? Right. So the the way I went about doing this is that I originally had started off looking at the future of work and it struck me that I had gone through about 
30 to 40 reports on the future of work, every single one of which talked about AI and automation, not a single one of which talked about climate change. And I just thought, like, what planet is this happening on? Like, is this mm-hmm. is the future of work not happening on Earth? Because <laughs> the scientific data is telling a completely different story. And we might want to pay attention to that data, especially when, you know, things like climate migration are a real factor, you know, the the CO2 levels, whether or not we can go outside, like what's the role of erratic weather in the future of work as well, right? Those are all going to be realities that we have to contend with. So noticing that, I, I kind of wanted to take a step back and look at, well, what is it that absolutely will be critical to the future? Where is the evidence going in terms of change and what's happening? What will wreak the most amount of havoc in our mm. world if it left uh, unresolved. And these were the three that I came up with. And so I played around with it quite a bit until um, I landed on something that that seemed right, that would fit literally any sort of problem or challenge space. So climate change being, again, the thing, like once our, once our planet tips, if we reach that tipping point, it's kind of game over. It's going to affect everything. Nobody's going to escape that. The battle for equality, justice, um, and democracy is global. It's happening everywhere. And unlike something like demographics, you know, which seems like the trend that we should pay attention to, really demographics can be manipulated quite easily when you just change the boundary around where you're looking at. And sometimes, you know, demographic changes don't play out the way we think that they will either. So there was this big thing about millennials changing the world when we first sort of, you know, came into power. And it turns out that we didn't really vote. So the policy changes that were supposed to come about never really happened as a result. So really, it's looking at that that outcome of equality, justice, and democracy that really matters there because those shifts that happen around those things are super critical. And then, of course, the rise of artificial intelligence. AI is going to affect every area, domain of life. Every single organization, I think, in the world needs to be paying attention to what's happening here. But it's not just, you know, what artificial intelligence is doing. It's the underlying values, assumptions, ethics, biases that are playing out here that are going to be highly problematic if we are not paying attention to. And so the the easiest way to to check whether or not the MinSpec holds up is Mm -hmm. to apply it to different problems. I did that earlier this year with COVID. I wanted to double check to see if it holds up and it does. So, you know, the the virus came out of our relationship with nature and our lack of uh, sustainability, the way that we treat animals. It then created the conditions for civil unrest on all sorts of fronts. And then the next wave that it's going to bring in is the acceleration of surveillance tech, which has been sped up as a result of, you know, having COVID and tracking and all of the things that we now want to do to mitigate the virus. So it's a it's a good little check. And unfortunately, we kind of failed the MinSpec this year. Well, it seems like those trends touch on really different areas across the board. But Do you feel like there might be areas or methods of speculative design and strategic foresight that you feel are not working and that need to be re-examined? Yeah, there's there's probably a lot to pick apart there and uh, probably a lot of people that can speak to different angles of this problem. So I'll Mm -hmm. touch upon a couple. One of the issues that I've had and and one of the reasons why I wrote my MinSpec was because I noticed that we were doing a lot of work that took into account, you know, the future of organizations and not the future of the systems that those organizations existed within. So when we create, you know, quote unquote, future-proof strategies, which are strategies that hold up no matter what future emerges, those strategies empower 
the organization that we create them for, what does it do to the system that has to then live with those strategies existing within it? So there's considerations that we're not taking into account when we do foresight work that then go on to affect us down the road in much more sinister ways or, you know, unintended ways that we have to think about. A perfect example of that is the Royal Dutch Shell scenarios. So the oil industry did the foresight work. They knew climate change was going to be a problem decades ago, and they continued to do what they're doing anyways. And now we're all contending with this massive problem that we had, you know, ample time to address that we just didn't address because, the organizations made a decision for the system and the system didn't get a chance to respond um, and do something about it. And so now we're, we're having to contend with the, the fallout of that. And now the system has to respond in a almost like a state of emergency. Right. And we're getting closer and closer to that point where this is becoming highly problematic for everybody across the board. So that's something that we really need to think about. And in terms of speculative design, I think speculative design has so much power. It can do so much to shift our views and engage people, really remove the boundaries between the futures that we might be facing and, you know, the the realities that we're living in right now to really get those barriers down and engage with those futures in a, in a visceral way. But we need to make sure that the speculative work that we're doing is based in evidence and that it's also emotionally resonant. So finding that, you know, balance between fact and fiction in a way that gives us grounding in reality and the signals that are emerging and really understanding what the, the problems are that we're facing. And then on the other hand, doing so in a way that really speaks to people and tugs at our hearts and captures our minds or captures hearts and minds. And, you know, finding a balance between the two to communicate things more effectively. I've been sharing this article that I actually found just yesterday, which speaks to what you, you're saying really well. But it was basically an article about doctors and architects coming together to try and create the perfect clinic. And I guess designers in kind of any other discipline, they really speak a different language. In any interdisciplinary work, there's always this disconnect when it comes to language because you're not mm -hmm. quite sure how to verbalize what you want. And so there was this great solution where there's an element of play that came into it. And, you know, where words fail you, you can always show somebody how you want something to be done. And it was basically these two groups coming together, playing with these figurines, kind of looking like Legos, and doctors would basically show architects exactly where they wanted pieces to be and how they could easily move around. And it was just such an interesting way to see how two worlds kind of were brought together in this new world almost. And it was built on the element of like creativity and play and opening up that conversation without being hindered by the lack of words. Yeah, and there's... Other examples of that as well, where the the role of play can really alter the outcome and that can be done in strategy and that can be done in, you know, in research and it can be done in the prototyping process as well. And so building mm -hmm. in elements of play into the work that we're doing can open up some new ways of thinking because we're in some ways embodying the future or the strategy or the research that we're trying to bring about. And so doing that can be a, a very effective way of engaging with the work that's a little bit different than the tra traditional ways that we're used to doing it. 
That kind of touches on a little bit about your world building model, which I really want to talk to you about, but maybe you can give us a background of what the model is. Yeah. So I created a world building model called the seven foundations model. That was the centerpiece of my research that I did while I was at OCAD university. And the model essentially is a breakdown of what I think are the seven key elements of any given system that exist regardless of the system that we're looking at, regardless of the uh, point in time that we're looking at. And these seven elements are always at play. Sometimes some of them are suppressed, but they're always there. So the seven elements are essentially, they look very similar to a framework called Steep V, which I did not realize until after I created it. I was like, oh, I've seen <laughs> this before. Um, but the seven elements are the political, the economic, the philosophical, the environmental, the scientific and technological, the artistic or aesthetic, and the social. And these seven factors, again, are always interacting with each other, and they're the basis, the modular pieces that make up any given organization system, whatever it is that we're looking at. And my goal was really not to look at these things from the, the perspective that we're used to looking at them as. I wanted to go to the very fundamental first principle definitions of those things. So, you know, politics, we immediately think of democracy, but really democracy is only one type of political structure. There can be many other types of structure. And so what we really want to get down to are systems of governance and power. What does that look like? And so when we go to that very, very fundamental definition of what something is, that can help us open up new ways of thinking. And so the goal of the, the model is to create a coherent world, a future state that we can operate within. It's, it's by looking at all seven at once, we kind of build for coherence, which is plausibility and, you know, having something that's realistic, that feels complete, that we can operate within and has its, you know, complete set of rules and all of that. And really, we're trying to, to get away from our present day thinking and extrapolations of those and trying to get into different radical visions of the future that are not based in present day reality that force us to think outside of what we know in the current paradigms. So, I always get asked uh, this question about culture. You know, where does culture belong in there? Well, culture is complex. <laughs> There's no <laughs> such thing as culture that lacks a relationship with its environment. There's no such thing as culture that doesn't have inherent politics built into it, that doesn't have social organizations and relationships built into it. So really, culture is a second order, meaning that you need all seven elements to produce culture. Is there an example of a project that you've worked on that utilizes your world building model? Yeah. So it's been used by a number of different organizations and I definitely uh, use it in my own work as well. So it's, I've used it with organizations that are heavily entrenched in entertainment that lend themselves really well to storytelling. I've also taken it into an executive meeting with construction executives who run a company, right. uh, which are completely different. It's been used by the Canadian military as well. So it's been used by a variety of different organizations in different contexts. And it's meant to be a flexible tool that can be used in a few different ways. One to, you know, map out signals, another to design scenarios and then look at strategies. So there's some versatility to it. In terms of work that I'm doing right now that I can speak to, I'm currently working with the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. And that work is heavily based in world building because we're looking at narratives and we're looking at, you know, what the, the future narratives around refugees could be. And so part of that is mapping the signals and using the seven foundations model to do that. And 
And then the next step that I'm working on now is actually designing scenarios. So those scenarios have an element of world building in it. So that's using the model, but you know, world building in general is really about creating comprehensive scenarios. So I describe it as creating a complex prototype of the future. Right. It sounds like you've worked across so many different types of industries, but do you feel like your method is better applied when approaching specific areas or sectors maybe? Well, organizations that value storytelling in general tend to gravitate towards it a little bit more quickly than others. But I have found that it's pretty agnostic and most foresight tools are. They're, they're fairly agnostic to industry and organization and sector and can be applied across the board. And really good work is cross-functional in terms of, or cross-pollinating, I should say, because it, it looks at how different aspects of the world can interact and collide with each other to then inform what we're doing. And so really any method or any tool used in foresight should be industry and sector agnostic as much as possible. Do you find that there are other tools that can strengthen the world building model as well? Yeah, absolutely. And I do that all the time. So, you know, I'm a big believer in making and breaking tools as much as possible. You know, the tool is really just the construct to get you to better dialogue and better insights. So the tool should serve that end goal. You don't privilege the tool above anything and everything else. It's really the the outcome that it produces. So one of the things that I like to do is I like to combine that particular tool with something called uh, generic images, which was created by Jim Dater. It's a scenario archetype method that has four different archetypes uh, of the future associated with it. And so, you know, when we look at a future that includes a collapse versus a transformation, I like to cross that with seven foundations and think about, you know, what are the different aspects of that collapse system versus what are the different aspects of the transformation system. And so building in the the world building aspect into some of those scenarios and those different approaches can give you a more comprehensive look at what that future system could be. So this is the the last question about speculative futures, strategic foresight, and even futurists. Are there any misconceptions that you feel like you need to talk about? Yeah, um, that's a very good question. So I, I think partly we have some misconceptions right now about who a futurist is and what a futurist does. And I think part of that is because the field is still sorting it out for itself. Right now, we don't have clarity on you know what the exact definition of a futurist is. But hopefully over time, we get to a little bit more clarity on what that is, particularly because when the work that we're doing deals with complexity and it deals with things like policy, it's really important that we know what we're doing, that we have, you know, experienced practitioners doing that work because there's potential for real harm to come out of it when you do that work poorly. And so having certain level of standards, I think, is going to be important going forward. And being able to distinguish, you know, who can do that work and who's right to do that work will be important. And there are different needs in the world as well, right? Like some futurists need to go do the policy work. Some futurists should go do the speculative design work. Both have value, right? And then there's many other types of work. The question is like, how do we sort out where the standards for all of those different things lie? And hopefully we'll get there and and we'll be able to do so eventually. The other misconception I think that uh, tends to happen is that people think that futurists predict the future. And Mm -hmm. that's really what the role should be. And so there is an element of forecasting and where forecasting can be important. You know, forecasting is very important when we're looking at scientific data and evidence. So when we're looking at issues where there's a lot of scientific data, 
then, you know, the models and the predictive aspect can be very, very useful. So definitely useful in terms of COVID and predicting cases. Also useful when looking at climate change and understanding, you know, where problems might arise in that in that particular space. What forecasting doesn't do is the looking at possibilities aspect, which is what foresight practitioners do. So foresight is really about looking at the possibilities that might emerge in the future and then understanding how to respond to them. And so, you know, the forecasting can tell us things like what are what's the rate of cases, like how fast is that going to climb? It's foresight work and those images of the future that will tell you, well, some people are not going to respond well to wearing masks. And what do you do when there's, you know, civil unrest and rebellion? The numbers can't tell you that, right? So uh, you kind of need elements of both depending on, you know, which problem that you're looking at. But really, as a foresight practitioner, we look at the possibilities, the alternatives, and not, you know, figuring out what exactly is going to happen, like saying this is the future, but saying the future could be many things. What do we do now to best prepare ourselves for those outcomes? I'm just going to ask a follow-up question to that. But do you consider being a futurist a skill that you can hone? And do you feel like it's teachable? Or do you feel like there's maybe an innate trait that futurists have? So I would say that it it is definitely a skill that you can practice Mm -hmm. for time. Certain things that futurists do really well that you can learn and practice and get better at over time. So, for instance, the vigilance that comes with the job, this constant scanning of looking for information, looking for signals, is a very critical aspect of the role. Thinking about how those signals might collide with each other, that's where we start to get into scenarios and looking at, like, how do you weave different pieces of evidence together to imagine what's possible? And then one of the the recommendations I always make is read more science fiction if you want to be a better futurist, because it goes back to, it's actually built into my thesis and what kind of inspired it, this idea that William Gibson put forward as science fiction being the superstructure of culture. Because when you think about alternatives, you're forced to think about, you know, how things could be very different. And science fiction does that, right? It takes the elements of culture, it breaks them down, and then it rebuilds them up in a in a different sort of way, which is essentially what I did with my model. I took the modular pieces, broke them down, and told you, here, reconfigure them in, in different ways. So reading science fiction can develop that capacity for thinking about alternatives and thinking about culture and the future and the systems that we're involved in differently. And so just even doing that can help you sharpen up that skill a little bit. So before we finish off, I know this is a question that's been on your mind a little bit, but what do you have more space for in 2021? This question is going to haunt me for the rest of 2021. <laughs> I, I have spent, of all of the questions, this yeah. is the one. So if I'm, if I'm being totally honest, I hope I have more space for trees and printer. <laughs> I've been sitting in a cube for most of lockdown, and I'm here in yeah. Toronto, and we've been uh, in fairly strict lockdown for a while right now. And being in the heart of the city where I haven't had much access to green space mm-hmm. has been a challenge. And so you, you kind of learn about what's important yeah. <laughs> when it's taken away. And so I, I'm going to say nature and green space. I'm also going to say having better quality quality conversations. I think we all need to sort of up our game in the kind of conversations that we're having going forward, coming out of the experience that we've just had that we're still not fully out of yet. I'm hoping that we're, we've all got a bit of a perspective on 
you know, what is it, what is it that's going to matter to us going forward, particularly if we are going to face crisis again in the future? What can we do about it? How do we prevent it? How do we mitigate it? And part of that is having dialogue and having open conversations and being willing to have some of those tougher conversations with each other. Well, I, I don't know how to help you with the uh, trees, but... <laughs> I don't know how to help myself. <laughs> um... I know a lot of people who've been buying houseplants, so maybe that would help. I don't, I don't know if that's the same effect, though. <laughs> that that could be a potential solution, and I think it's it's interesting because it's probably tied to a bunch of trends and, and signals that we're seeing now as well, right? So yeah. in Toronto, people don't want to buy condos, but the housing market is still soaring through the roof. So lots of houses being sold. And I think part of that is like, everybody wants a lawn now. So <laughs> it's outdoor space is like, it's a real commodity at the moment. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me and for letting me pick your brain a little bit. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. A big thank you to our producer, Scott Ellingworth, for making us sound good. The Future of Now podcast is produced by More Space for Life. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, please stay safe, look after each other, and as always, be awesome.